All right, so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Gospel of John, chapter 5. We'll be finishing chapter 5 today. Um, I, can't, I can't get enough of this gospel, honestly. It just keeps getting better and better and better, and you know, I just love how it just glorifies Jesus, how it just magnifies Jesus. Uh, just a quick review from last week. You know, we saw three, uh, the third miracle of Jesus that was healing a man at the pool of Bethsaida. And, um, and through this miracle, Jesus showed us that salvation is by grace. If you guys were here last, last week, that was the message. And we also saw the message of Jesus claiming to be equal to the Father, claiming to be equal with God, and making himself equal to God. We saw that Jesus is equal to the Father in three ways. But uh, before I get in any further, let's open up in prayer. Father, we just come before you, Lord, to thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for these people here today. We thank you for the message, your word. Lord, I pray that it just go forth, that it minister to our hearts, that you speak to each one of us individually. Lord, that you give us strength through your word. Lord, may your Holy Spirit just... Lord, baptize us here tonight. May your Holy Spirit be upon us. May you give us understanding. May you give us wisdom, Lord, and discernment of your word. Lord, I pray that you just strengthen our walk with you. Bless us here now with your presence, Lord, and bless us, Father, as we uh, go through your word. I pray that you just speak to us tonight. We love you, we honor you, and we give you all the glory in your precious name. Amen. So three ways where we saw that Jesus was equal to the Father one, he was equal in works. You know, since the fall of Adam and, and since uh, Adam and Eve sinned, the father and the son, they've been working and seeking to save the lost souls of man. So in works, uh, Jesus is equal to the father. And, in, and he's also equal to the father in judgment. The father has committed all judgment to the son, as we saw. And then third, he was equal in honor, in honor to the father I, and I, I think this one is really important because people, many religions, many people claim to worship God. Many people claim to worship the same God that as Christians we worship, but let, they leave out the Trinity of God. They leave out, uh, the, uh, God is a triune God, so they, leave, they don't give the honor to the Son or the Holy Spirit. They, only, they, they think God is just one when God is one in being, but three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as, as we honor the Father, we should honor the Son in the same way um, as we saw last, last week. So today we're going to finish chapter 5, and we're going to continue this message of Jesus is equal to the Father. So next we're going to see in verses 24 through 29, Jesus explains the claim that he made in verse 21 to have authority to resurrect the dead. He has authority over death. And in these, verse, th these verses, Jesus is going to speak to us of four different kinds of ways where uh, uh, of the, the four different resurrections that, that, we're going to, that are going to take place one day that we're going to see and uh, I want to get started right away. It's a pretty long message. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 24. And the first one, the first resurrection that we're going to see is verses 24 through 25. It is the resurrection of lost sinners into eternal life. 
the resurrection of lost sinners into eternal life. And I want to point something out before we get started, though. Jesus here in these two verses, he uses this phrase. He says, most assuredly, I say to you. He uses it twice as we're going to read through these verses. Jesus uses this introduction to, to um, most of his words in, in this gospel alone about 20 times. He uses the same introduction, most assuredly I say to you. And I bring this up because it is of great importance. It is so important because Jesus is saying it with great importance. Jesus is saying that, he's, he's practically saying, pay attention to this. Pay attention to what I'm about to say because it is very important. Most assuredly I say to you, he says, Meaning, pay attention. Pay attention to what I'm about to say because this is very, very important. So pay attention. All right? Notice verse 24. We're going to go through 25. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Again, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear, guess what, will live. The word of Christ, the word alone, his, what, him speaking, there is power in Christ. And notice we know that lost sinners, they're nothing but lifeless, helpless, dead corpse. We know that if you read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it speaks of us being dead in our sin. Walking dead person. Have you seen, watched The Walking Dead? Yeah, you're a walker if you're in sin. <laughs> walking dead person. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about it. And the lost sinner, they're helpless. They are helpless to save themselves and they certainly cannot give themselves life. We know that. We, we can't give ourselves life. So how can a person be saved? How can a dead sinner be given life? If we are dead in sin, how do we receive life? Notice Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. A dead sinner is raised to life by the hearing of God's word and believing, believing in the Son of God. With these words, Jesus lifted himself far above the level of any mere man, any, any man that ever lived with these words alone. Th think about it. He says, he who hears my words and believes has everlasting life. Either these words are of some insane man or they are the very words of God himself. There, there, there can be no neutral ground here. Because if you remember our last day, Jesus claimed to have power to raise the dead, and what did we see in the Old Testament? It clearly teaches us that 
not, that only God has the power to give life. So either Jesus is God or he is not and we are still dead in trespasses. Last study, we also saw Jesus heal the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethsaida and Jesus simply, what? Spoke. Take up your bed and walk. And he was healed. The power of his word. He spoke. And later, we're going to see in, in John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead with his word. He simply spoke, Lazarus, come forth. Those were the words he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, what did he do? He, the Lazarus who died, who was in the grave for, I believe, about five days already. What did he do? He came to life. The power of the, the, the word of Christ. Jesus said to Martha in chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe the word of Jesus? Do you believe that his word is living that his word is powerful and can raise sinners from spiritual death into everlasting life. It's, there's so much to it, but we, we just need to believe it. Because to hear his word and believe, notice, means salvation. What does it mean to reject his word? To reject his word means condemnation. And this life, this life of everlasting life is available to all of us right now. To, all, to everybody in this world. He desires no one to perish, but all to come to repentance. This life is available. Everlasting life means that you can never die spiritually. That you will never die, or, nor will you ever come into judgment you will never be judged with the wicked. Everlasting life. And so the second resurrection that we're going to see is mentioned in verse 26. It's the resurrection of Jesus himself. Notice verse 26 through 27 it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. What did John chapter 1 verse 4 say? In him was life and the life was the light of men. In him is life. Here Jesus further described his uh, uniqueness to these religious leaders by claiming that he has life in himself. He is the very embodiment of life granted to him by the Father who also has life in himself. Jesus is life. He is not dependent on any person or thing for life. He is the creator of life. He is the giver of life. And none of us have life inherent to ourselves. 
None of us can do that. Our life is uh, derived from our parents. Our life begins in our mother's womb. But Jesus here claims that his life was derived from no one, not even uh, his mother Mary. That's not where his life began. Jesus' life is inherent. It is, he is uncreated. And theologians actually call this quality of self-existence, there's this word, it's aseity. It's derived from the, the Latin language, meaning the property by which a being exists of and from itself. And they recognize that only God alone can possess this. So by Jesus saying that he is life, is saying that he is God, because God alone possesses this. And therefore the grave, it's not going to hold him down. It didn't hold him down. He is the very possessor of life, and Jesus laid down his life, and then what did he do? He took it up again. He says, no one takes my life. I give it willingly, and I take it up again. And because he has life in himself, he can share that life with any and all who believe in him. The third resurrection that's mentioned is the future resurrection unto life. The future resurrection, verse 28 through 29. You know, when believers who have already fallen asleep, we, we see the Bible speaks of believers as not pe- people that have died, but that have fallen asleep, meaning Christians who have, have died, believers who have died. The Bible speaks of them as falling asleep. And, and, and here, those, those believers who have already fallen asleep are raised from the dead. Notice verse 28 through 29. It says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. This truth is also explained in 1 Timothy chapter 4 in verses 13 through 17. I'm going to read it to you. Paul says, But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, meaning believers who are still alive, until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, meaning that the dead will rise first. Notice it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and notice the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, speaking of the rapture, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be with the Lord. This message of Scripture, it's, it's very clear here. The, 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 you know, the Bible, it doesn't define death as a, uh, 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 what's the word? A cessation of life. 
It doesn't, it doesn't mean that, it, that we just cease to live. We, you know, it's more defined as a separation when a Christian dies. Physi- physical death is a separation of the soul from the body. James wrote in James 2.26, the body without the spirit is dead. And Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Solomon described the separation in Ecclesiastes 12, saying that, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. The message of scripture is is clear, and for God's children, the separation of soul from body that occurs during death, it's, it's only temporary. Because on the day of the rapture, Jesus here says, notice, for the hour is coming, I believe Jesus was speaking here of the rapture. For the hour is coming when the dead will rise first. Notice the dead will hear his voice and notice they will come forth. And the body of the believer who dies before the rapture will reconnect with their soul, which have been residing with the Lord in heaven. Notice Paul said, In 1 Corinthians, he says, For the Lord will descend with a shout. The Lord will descend with a shout. And notice at the end of verse 28 again, Jesus says, All who are in graves will hear his voice and come forth. What did Jesus shout to Lazarus when he rose him from his grave in John chapter 11? It says he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus heard whose voice? His voice in his grave, and he came forth. I believe this was a type of the rapture when the dead will rise first, and I believe the shout of Jesus at the rapture of his people will be, come forth. When he comes with a shout, I believe he will be saying, my church, my people, come forth. The dead will rise first and all those who have fallen asleep will wake up. Those who are in graves will come forth first to the resurrection of life. And that is those who died as believers and have been buried in their graves as we've spoken about, regardless of their condition, they're like, well, the body's eaten up by worms. How can, how can the body be raised up? How can that, why would God want to use that, that body? No, they're going to be raised in, in, in an immortal state. They're going to be reunited with their souls and falling immediately. The believer who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And, and, and so you see, because of Jesus, because of Jesus and the power he has to raise the dead and give life. Death is not the end for the believer. Nor will we live in in heaven as a, a disembodied spirit. God saves the whole person, and this includes the body. And again, keep in mind, the, the resurrection of the body is not a reconstruction of the body. 
That's not what it means. It it does not imply that God puts the pieces back together again. The the resurrection of the body is is a new body. It's a glorified body suited for suited for heaven that's a different environment up there paul says in first corinthians 15 42 through 44 he says so also the resurrection of the dead the body is sown in corrupt in corruption but is raised in incorruption it is sown in dishonor but is raised in glory it's sown in weakness but it is raised in power it's sown in a natural body, but is raised a spiritual body. In verse 53, in the same chapter, he says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And so this that Jesus speaks in verse 28, and what Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, They're all going to take place when Jesus Christ returns in the air and calls his people to himself. I find this pretty incredible. And so now we go to our fourth resurrection that is mentioned at the end of verse 29. The resurrection of condemnation. Notice, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So notice, we as believers in Christ, we have nothing to worry about this resurrection because this resurrection involves only the unbeliever. This resurrection will actually take place just before Christ brings in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelations 20. You can read about it. The Bible in Revelation 20 speaks of this as the second death. And so Jesus explained all this to the, uh, the religious leaders to explain to them who he was, the nature of his authority and his deity. But at the same time, this tells us something uh, pretty remarkable about us, about humanity. It's something that, that silences all the, the atheists that believe that there is no life after death. There's that belief that we just cease to exist. Jesus here tells us and shows us that everyone, both those who are, have done good and, bo- and those who have done evil, notice, will live forever either eternal life in heaven or eternal death in the lake of fire. But we will all live forever. And notice the consequences. If this, what we believe is true as Christians versus if what the atheists believe is true. Notice there can only be one truth. Because if everything is true, if every religion is true, if there's many ways to heaven, then none of it's true. There can only be one truth. So if we believe that we, there is consequences if you're, you don't believe in Christ, 
And the atheist believes there is no consequences if you don't believe in Christ. If what they believe is true, then there are no consequences for my belief being wrong. Think about it because we just go into nothing. So if I'm wrong, perfect, just go into nothing. But if, we be, if what we believe is true about what Scripture says, then the consequences will be eternal. It will be eternal to those who believed wrong. The, so notice it, their argument is just not logical. I'm not, I mean, I'm definitely not going to take that chance, but I don't, I don't believe in Christ because I don't want to go to hell. I believe in Christ because of the love that he's shown me, and I desire to love him, and I desire to be with him, because why? He did not want eternity without us. I don't want eternity without him. I don't want to live in a place, I don't want to live in eternity in a place that is absent from God who is all loving, who is all merciful, all gracious, long-suffering. I don't want to live in a place that is absent from that. And there is a place that is absent from God because of a wrong choice. So I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I believe that you guys are all here because you believe the same thing. And if you don't, I beg you to believe. Verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Notice again, Jesus explains that his power is in submission to the will of God the Father and specifically here as a righteous judge. And I believe that that day will be a glorious day when the dead, both good and evil, will stand before Christ in judgment. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and the Father has given him all the authority to execute judgment. And today, Jesus Christ is the Savior. But one day, he's going to be Jesus Christ, the judge. So right now, we're living by grace to make the right choice, the right decisions in believing. And one day, that door will be shut. No one will be able to get through that door once it's shut. And so next we see in verses 30 through 47, Jesus makes the claim that there are valid witnesses who support his claim to deity. There are, some, there are valid witnesses, and here Jesus will give us four witnesses, valid witness testimonies to prove his claim of being God. And if you remember when we started this gospel, I mentioned that the word witness is a key word in this gospel because it is used 47 times in the gospel of John because witnesses help prove the deity of Jesus. 
and these biblical witnesses that are given to us throughout all scripture, they're all validated as trustworthy witnesses. Jesus bore witness of himself, but he knew that they would not accept it. Notice verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. It wasn't enough for Jesus to simply claim things about himself. There had to be outside and reliable witness to confirm his true identity and his nature. This principle of witnesses was actually established in Deuteronomy 19.5, which says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So here Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you one. I'm not going to give you two nor three. I'm going to give you four witnesses that prove that I am who I, I say I am. And so Jesus called in for these trustworthy witnesses who testified that he is the Son of God. And he, uh, he says in verse 32, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. The first witness we see, verse 33 through 35, John the Baptist. Notice, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in him. If you remember in chapter 1, John confidently knew who Jesus was, and he faithfully declared what he knew to the people of Israel, to these religious leaders. He, 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 he declared, John declared to the people that Jesus was Lord. He declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin. He declared that Jesus was the Son of God. Verse 34 in chapter 1, he points to Jesus, says, this is the Lamb of God. He says, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus notes that the religious leaders knew and they heard John the Baptist declare these things. And they needed to think of and believe what John said about Jesus. They needed to think, hey, do you remember what John said about me? Everything I'm saying about me He's saying about me. It's the same thing. There's already one witness. Notice he was the burning and shining lamp. And they were willing for a time to rejoice in him. The, the religious leaders, they accepted the work of John the Baptist for a time. And so Jesus is saying that they needed to continue to believe John's witness regarding him as the Messiah. Don't stop believing what John told you. Don't stop believing what you've read just yesterday. Don't stop believing, you know, what we read five weeks, six weeks ago, John chapter 1. The witnesses we saw there. Continue to believe what the Word of God says. Read through the Word of God because it is all true, as if, as if it's all true because it is all true. 
And the second witness that Jesus gives us is the witness of his works, his miracles. Notice verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Remember John the writer of the, of the, uh, the John the writer of this gospel, he, he carefully selected seven of these miraculous works to include in his gospel. We've already seen three as proof as proof that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you notice, the majority of his miraculous works that Jesus performed, they were all just really simple acts of compassion, simple acts of mercy, done for simple and needy people. also bearing witness to us, what? The heart of God. The heart of God. And these works were actually stumbling to the Jews. They were actually stumbling to these Jewish leaders because they were not looking for a Messiah that would express his miracles, his power, in just simple acts of compassion or mercy. They weren't looking for a Messiah that was compassionate and merciful. They wanted a Messiah that would use his power to bring military and political deliverance to Israel. That's what they were really looking for in their Messiah. Therefore, because Jesus' miracles and his work, they didn't fit in what they thought the Messiah would do or be like, they rejected him. They didn't receive the witness of his works. And so Jesus made it clear to them that his works were the works of the Father who sent him. If you remember in um, John chapter 3, either verse 1 or verse 2, even Nicodemus, a religious leader, a religious leader, Nicodemus, had to admit, admit that our Lord himself that his miracles identified him as sent from God. Even a Jewish religious leader, Nicodemus, knew that his works were of one that was sent from God. John chapter 3, I believe it is verse 2. But notice the Bible, it, it also shows us that miraculous works were also performed by many ordinary men. Many other men, for example, Moses, Elijah, Paul, even the disciples performed miracles and wonders. Well, what about them? Do these miracles then also prove that they were sent by God? Actually, yeah, it does. But the difference is that none of these men, none of them ever claimed to be the very Son of God. None of them. No servant that was ever used by God to perform his mighty works, they ever claimed or would ever claim to be God himself. Therefore, his mighty works and his claim bear witness 
of him as the one true God. Because not only does he perform the works, but he makes the claim. And the third witness Jesus gives us is the word of the Father, verse 37 through 38. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. In virtually every work and word of Jesus, God the Father testified to Jesus as his son in the scripture. But specifically, the Father testified of the Son all throughout the Old Testament scripture, prophecy after prophecy, and even at the baptism of Jesus in Luke 3, verse 22, it said, And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. The voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. And if the, if the father's voice from heaven wasn't good enough, we still have all the Old Testament scripture, which is the word of the father that bear witness to Jesus. Notice verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The word of God. In theory, these religious leaders that at that time, they, they valued the scripture. They valued, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, that's the only um, scriptures they had. They valued them, they studied them, they memorized, they meditated upon them continually notice thinking that they had eternal life because of their supposed knowledge of these scriptures because they were Jews who were part of the promise the 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 covenant that God initially made thinking that if they're born a Jew they're automatically saved that's not the case you see they didn't really search the scripture to seek God they sought to know the word of God, but they, they didn't seek to know the God of the word. They just wanted to find arguments that would support their own position in the kingdom of God. These religious leaders, they were blind to the Messiah because they didn't really love God. When you don't really have a love for God, you're blind to his truth, to his word. So what happens when you try to evangelize or minister to someone and, and you, you speak to them about Jesus? They don't have the love of God in them, so they're blind to the truth. So to them, it doesn't make sense. They love their own ideas about God. Sometimes many people prefer to make up their own idea about God 
And so if there's th- th- these people, these religious leaders, if their their study of scripture was accurate and sincere, then they would have seen that they spoke of the Messiah. They would have seen this, that, that it spoke of God the Son. So it was their lack of recognizing and believing in Jesus that measured their true understanding of the scripture. Jesus used the word scripture 11 times in this gospel, always referring to the Old Testament scripture, trying to get them to believe, saying, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. We hear him say that many times, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Over 300, yet the people who received and preserved the scriptures were blind to these prophecies. Out of the 300, you would think they would have at least recognized one prophecy. But no, they were blind to to all of them. Why is that? I wonder why they were so blind. What was the reason for their blindness to this truth? Notice verses 40 through 44. It says, but you are, notice, not willing, speaking of free will, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. But I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Notice, how can you believe who receives honor from one another and does not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Notice, pride. Pride. It was because of pride, the fatal error of these religious leaders of Jesus' day and even to this day is pride. The one sin that caused the fall of Satan, pride. Their hearts were filled with the pride of life, making them blind to the truth of God. The motive of their actions were were not out of love for God, but for the approval of men. The approval, therefore, making them unwilling to accept Jesus as the Messiah, even though they had all the testimony, they had all the witnesses that one could have. They had the signs, the wonders that I would have loved to have seen. Yet they were more concerned with man's honor instead of the honor that comes from God. Notice, whoever receives honor from one another, but do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. They longed for this prestige life. They longed to be glorified by men. Honor from one another. And so they were willing to sacrifice the honor that comes from God for the sake of man's honor. I read a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this verse in verse 44. 
And the title of that message is Why Men Cannot Believe in Christ. Why Men Cannot Believe in Christ. And the whole sermon was him examining how fame, honor, and these celebrity, the celebrity lifestyles, they hinder true faith. One thing he said that really stood out to me, he said, when a person gets to feel that they ought to be honored, they are in extreme danger. But oh, how many live on the breath of their fellow men to be approved, to be applauded. That is their heaven. But to be despised, to be sneered at, to be called a fool, to be mocked, to have some nickname applied to them, oh no, they would sooner rather go to hell than bear that. Wow. Be careful with pride. Be careful with pride. It's one of Satan's greatest weapons to blind us from truth. One of the biggest reasons people don't come to Christ is because they're prideful. Is because they don't want to give over control of their life to Christ. They want to have their own control of life. And keep in mind, this is one of three temptations that Satan uses all the time. He does not deviate from these three temptations. One being the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. When he tested Jesus in the wilderness, those were the three temptations that he tested Jesus with. The pride of life. Satan offers you the world. He says, all this can be yours, but you've got to sell your soul. All this, the pride of life, will blind us. And in closing, the fourth witness that Jesus gives us is the testimony of Moses. Verse 45 through 47, notice, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. Notice, I'm not the one that is going to accuse you. There is one who accuses you, and that's Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, notice, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? These religious leaders supposedly believed and studied the law of Moses, yet by rejecting Jesus, they reject God's word that was spoken through Moses. Because Moses wrote and prophesied about Jesus, the Messiah, many times. There were many types of Christ in the life of Moses. There are there, there are many prophecies. For example, Deuteronomy 18.5, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Notice prophet with a capital P. Like me, from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Remember the bronze serpent? In Numbers 21.8-9, it represented Christ. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, 
when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What happens when you look at Christ? You live. The rock that gave Israel water in the wilderness in in Numbers chapter 20 was a type of Christ. Notice what 1 Corinthians 10, 2 through 4 say about Numbers chapter 20. It says, Paul says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Clear as day. There are many more typologies and and prophecies we can go on for days of Jesus that came from Moses and in them nothing when he when he gave these prophecies none of them were complete they pointed to other things they pointed to the one which has come to pass fulfilled by Christ and so notice they do not believe his writings how then will they believe the word of Jesus you see Jesus didn't call Israel to this, um, some new, some kind of different faith. He didn't call them to something new. He simply called them to believe what Moses, what the scriptures, what the Father's word says, what his works, and what John the Baptist had already testified about him. He said, just believe what these witnesses, just believe what the, my word says, just believe Moses, just believe John the Baptist, believe me. As we all testify of Jesus, right? He simply called them to believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If these religious leaders didn't believe this overwhelming proof from these testimonies, then it was unlikely that they would believe Jesus' own words. If you don't believe with all the evidence that we have, many people will say, prove it. There is proof if you, I don't know if you've read about um, What is that author? The Case for Christ, uh, Lee, Stro- Lee Strobel? Lee Strobel. He actually went on a mission to prove that Christ didn't exist, that he didn't die on the cross, and he came up short big time and ended up proving himself wrong. It's harder to disprove God but it's easier to prove God. So if we don't believe with all the evidence, then it is true what Abraham said to the rich man in hell. In Luke 16, 31. Remember Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus died and was taken to Abraham's bosom. The rich man was taken 
this huge gulf separating the rich man on the other side in hell, what did Abraham say to him? First of all, the rich man asked Abraham, let me go back and warn my brothers that this place is a torment. Please let me go back. But Abraham said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. There is overwhelming proof. That's why I love this gospel. A lot of times, you know, we'll perm- like we permit um, religious traditions, to, like even religious tra- traditions alone can blind us from the truth of God's word. Religion. Don't get involved with religion. Christ just wants a personal relationship with you. Just believe in me. Just surrender to me. You don't have to do all these works. You don't have to say 100 Hail Marys. You don't have to. You just believe in me. Don't be so caught up with the desires of, of actually knowledge in the scripture that you you tend to fail to see jesus in the scripture people get so caught up i gotta know everything i i gotta know i they get caught up with knowledge and they end up having this zeal but no knowledge because they fail to see christ as these religious leaders they were so caught up with their knowledge of the old testament scripture that they didn't even recognize christ It's simple. You believe, you read, you seek, you pray, and you believe. Did I say believe already? Yeah. Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. We believe in you, Jesus. We believe in you, Lord, as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God, as our Lord, our Lord and our God, we believe in you. I thank you, Lord, for this message. And Lord, whatever you've spoken here today, Lord, may that seed, Lord, just be watered. May you begin to grow it, Lord. May you strengthen our faith in you, Lord, even whatever circumstances we we face daily, Lord, whatever circumstances, whatever trials these young adults here today are facing, Lord. I pray, Father, I pray, Jesus, that you just reveal yourself in a mighty way that they may believe that you are the one true God, that you are Jehovah, that you are Yahweh, All the Old Testament, Lord, speaks of you. I pray, Father, that you reveal to us more of you through the Old Testament, that you reveal to us more of you as we go through your word. Lord, we desire more of you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just speak to us, Lord, and that you magnify Christ in our lives. 
as he has been given all authority, as he has been given all honor, all glory, as he is seated at the right hand of the Father. May we look to him. May we worship him. May we glorify him in our lives, Lord, in our ways, the way we live our life. May it point to Christ. And may people believe, Lord. Believe in you and who you are. So we love you. We honor you. And Lord, we just thank you for everything you've, you've done, Lord, for your, the salvation you've given us, for the wisdom you have given us, for the knowledge you have given us. Lord, we thank you for that. So Lord, protect us. Protect your church, Lord. I pray, Father, you put a hedge of protection around the hearts and the minds of these young adults here today, Lord, that you protect them, Lord, and I pray, Father, that you do a mighty work in their life, that you use them for your glory. That is why we're here, Lord, because we want to be used by you. We want to know you, Lord. We want to grow with you. May we be your true followers, your true disciples. Every day, Lord, may we just magnify you. So we pray now, Jesus, in your most precious holy name we pray. Amen.